Good morning. Thank you, Gage, for reading that scripture so well. We're uh, welcoming kids of all ages into our service this morning, too. This is the third Sunday, and that's our custom family worship Sunday. So, as we normally would dismiss for the meadow, all kids are welcome to stay in the worship service. And if you're a guest here and you need more space or something, the service is streamed also into the fellowship hall, but everybody's welcome uh, in the sanctuary here uh, as we turn to the word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, our desire is to sing of your goodness. We've just sang those words together and been reminded that no matter what we are facing in life, in our narrow, limited perspective, Father, we can only see so much. We can only see what's right in front of us. But, Father, we acknowledge by faith and, and by experience, Lord, for those of us that know you as Savior, we know that you are good. And so we acknowledge that together. We ask for you to reveal your truth to us this morning in the way that only your spirit can do. So open our eyes and our hearts as we look at this challenging text, a sobering text. And so draw out for us that which we need to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you had a time machine, where and, or when, I should say, would you go? This was one of my favorite ideas in science fiction stories from a very young age, uh, time travel. I've loved time travel books and movies, and I think people are fascinated with these stories because we love to imagine, what would it be like if I could travel into the far future, see what things would be like? What would it be like if I could go to the distant past and see some great events, see some things in Scripture as they happened? It's pretty cool to imagine, to ask those questions. But if we're honest, I think for many of us, if we had a time machine and we thought long and hard about what we would use it for, I think many of us would go back to a point in our own lives to change something. Maybe there's something that you did or didn't do that you wish you could take back, some wrong that you wish you could make right, if only you had the chance to do that. Maybe something comes to mind for you, something big, something small, maybe a bad decision, some hurtful words that you said that you wish you could just go back in time and take those words back, but you can't, a regret that you could fix. The trouble is, if you've watched or read many time travel stories, it doesn't often go so well, does it, when people change the past? There's usually horrible consequences for that, right? We disrupt the space-time continuum and everything goes wrong. These stories, many of them, turn into cautionary tales, which is interesting because time travel isn't, isn't real, and yet we're given these cautionary tales about what we would do with it if we had it. But I think that's because these stories express this human longing that we have, this wish to go and change something, to go and undo some wrong, and yet we know we never can. Because in real life, there's no going back. There's no undo button. We're stuck with the consequences of our words and our actions. We continue this morning uh, in our series in the life of David. We've called Pursuing God's Heart. 
We've been in his story for several weeks now, and we're nearing the end of his story in Scripture. And in recent weeks, as we were reminded in the call to worship, we've seen this man after God's own heart fall into sin and temptation. And when he was confronted, he repented of that sin, and God was gracious to forgive him as God forgives all of us in Christ. But as we heard last week, forgiveness does not mean that we get to escape all the consequences of our sin. So we come to a portion of Scripture this morning that is probably the most vivid and clear picture of the consequences of sin that there is in all the Bible. David's terrible sin, though he has repented, though he has been forgiven, that sin has left a trail of destruction that lasts for years and years and years. And so we need to come to this story together this morning and see the seriousness of sin. To be reminded that sin brings consequences. But we also need to take hold of the hope, as David does here, that God will never leave us or forsake us, no matter how far away we might stray. And so let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you have a Bible uh, in front of you, 2 Samuel 15 We're going to be running through a lot of story uh, today that we don't have time to cover in detail. I wish we did, but if you didn't have a chance this week, I encourage you to go back later and read through 2 Samuel 15 through 18. Now, if you've never read the story before, prepare yourself. This is like a soap opera on steroids. Uh, David and his family endure one horrible situation after another. There's betrayal. There's murder. There's all sorts of twists and drama and sorrow as the consequences of David's sin work themselves out. But we knew this was coming, didn't we? Think back to when Nathan the prophet confronted David and David repented. Well, part of God's word through Nathan to David was that there would be consequences. Your sin's forgiven, David, but the sword will never leave your house. Because of what you've done, the sword will never leave your house. And we see this vividly in the following chapters that comes true. The sword doesn't leave David's house, tragically. Well, first, one of David's sons, Amnon, he abuses and takes for himself his half-sister, Tamar. Does that sound familiar? Like father, like son. And then David's son, Absalom, Tamar's brother, finds out about it, and Absalom plots revenge. He takes his time, and he hatches a plan, and he kills his brother Amnon. And this is just the very beginning of the story. David is, of course, devastated. He's mourning for all this sin and all this loss, and now the loss of his son Amnon, he's mourning, and his son Absalom, because of killing his brother, he flees. And so David is now mourning the loss of Absalom. He's mourning the separation that he has now with his son Absalom. The end of chapter 13 tells us that David longed to see his son Absalom, to to make things right somehow with this estranged son. Well, finally, at the end of chapter 14, we're told that David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and paid homage with his face to the ground before him. Then the king kissed Absalom. And that's all we're told about this meeting, this reuniting. I mean, they, they had a lot to say to each other that evidently didn't get said. But at least they reconciled, right? Well, look at chapter 15 now, verse 1. 
After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and said, What city are you from? If he replied, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, Look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, If only someone would appoint me judge in the land, then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me and I would make sure he received justice. You hear this guy? He's just so slimy. It's amazing anybody fell for this, right? But he's got charisma. He's got good looks, as we're told in chapter 14. He's patient, too. He's smart. He's determined. He doesn't just rush right in and do something without thinking. He takes his time. He thinks it through. Look at verse 6. Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So little by little, over a long period of time, Absalom stole the hearts of Israel from David their king. Absalom had grown to hate his father in this time of separation. He grew to want to steal the throne from his father. Now verse 7 tells us that four years passed where this is going on. This, this hatred is brewing. This plan is being slowly and carefully worked out. Four years. Absalom is gaining influence. He's gaining power behind his father's back. Now, was David totally unaware this was happening? Maybe. I, I kind of find that hard to believe. David's people are everywhere. This is happening prominently as people are coming to see the king to seek justice. And Absalom is swooping in. I think, David is, I think it's more likely David here is unwilling to see what's going on here. He's unwilling to accept the possibility that the dysfunction in his family is even worse than he feared. And he lets it go. He lets it go unaddressed until it gets too big to stop. Look at verse 13. Then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will overtake us quickly, heap disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Can you imagine what David is feeling at this moment? Having to run for his, own, for his life from his own son. How did this happen? David must be thinking in this moment. How did I let it get this far? If only I could go back and change things. If only I could go back and do it differently. See, the consequences of David's sin just have this ripple effect, and they don't stop. David can't do anything about it. It just keeps going. This is what sin does. We think we can contain it. We think we can control it. But the impact of sin always goes further than we intend. Verse 23. Everyone in the countryside was weeping loudly while all the people were marching out of the city. As the king was crossing the Kidron Valley, all the people were marching past on the road that leads to the wilderness. Verse 30, David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping. 
as he ascended. And what an image. Think back to when David and his men marched into Jerusalem and took the city. A great day of victory and triumph. Now they are marching out of the city just for the sake of their own lives, just to survive. How did this happen? If only, if only. David is now on the run for his life with his band of loyal followers. Does that sound familiar? David's been here before, hasn't he? Many years before, when he had run from King Saul. But what was different then? He was innocent. Now David is running for his life from a mess that he made. I flip over to chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18. The conflict continues to escalate. David's army is about to go out and face Absalom's. Look at verse 5 of chapter 18. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. All the people heard the king's orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So this conflict has come to a head. There's no way that this is going to end without more bloodshed. This is tragedy. And David tells his generals, hey, I think it's clear you're going to win the battle, but whatever happens, please spare my son. Don't hurt Absalom. And everybody hears it. Can you imagine the agony in David's heart as his men are going off to war against their own people? Can you feel David's dread? However this day goes, it's a disaster. Well, David's army defeats Absalom's army, and look down to verse 9. Absalom was riding on his mule when he happened to meet David's soldiers. When the mule went under the tangled branches of a large oak tree, Absalom's head was caught fast in the tree. The mule under him kept going, so he was suspended in midair. You can't make this up. Notice in verse 9, it says he happened to meet. I, I love that. The author is just sliding this in. You know, God is sovereign over all of this, and what Absalom was trying to do, that has consequences too. And it's not ultimately going to work out for Absalom. So he happened to meet David's soldiers, and then this crazy thing happens where David's men see Absalom. They see him riding his mule. He rides under a tree, and they're following it, and they see the mule keep running, and there's no Absalom. And then they look up, and there's Absalom, dangling there from a tree, somehow caught by his head. The branches have somehow trapped him up in the tree, or maybe more likely caught in his long hair. We're told he's got really, really long hair in chapter 14. So maybe his hair gets tangled in the tree. Either way, he's suspended there in midair. He's dangling there, the mighty Absalom, just dangling there, can't do anything about it, right in front of David's men. Verse 10. One of the men saw him and informed Joab, hey, he said, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. You just saw him, Joab exclaimed. Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? I would have given you ten silver pieces and a belt. Now, why didn't the soldier just kill Absalom right then and there? Well, because of what David said. He's honoring the king's request, but Joab decides to take matters into his own hands. Joab takes three spears, it says, and he stabs Absalom right where he is in the tree. And slowly, word from the battle starts to come back, and King David is standing there waiting to hear word, and 
One by one, the messengers come back and just give a little more of the story. And David keeps saying, is the young man Absalom all right? Yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. But is the young man Absalom all right? A king, but also a father. He finally hears what happened to his son, and his heart breaks even more. Look at verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber above the city gate and wept. As he walked, he cried, My son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. If only. If only. Two of the most painful words that we can ever say. As we look back in our own lives, we say, if only I had done. If only I had not done. We all have regrets, those decisions, those actions that we wish we could take back, but again, we're stuck with the consequences. We don't have a time machine to undo what was done. And this is what sin does. So many times in Scripture, God warns us directly about sin and His love. He tells us what's going to happen if we sin. And here in this story, we, we have this warning vividly in the form of a tragic, true story to show what happens when sin works itself out in a heart, in a family, in a nation. David's been forgiven. Let's not forget that. But he's not freed from all the consequences. And while we can't go back and change our past, we can, with God's help, look forward with what's right ahead of us, the decisions that we make today, the decisions that we will come to tomorrow. We can consider, with God's help, what are the consequences of my actions? If I give in to this temptation, who could get hurt? What would be the impact on my family, my community, my career? If I lie to my parents about this small thing, what, what could happen? If I let my heart, if I allow covetousness and lust to take hold in my heart, what, what could happen if this really played out? And hey, maybe we would do something and nobody would ever know. But that's where we're deceived because sin always takes more from us than we intend to give. God has recorded this part of David's story for us in Scripture because he wants us to see the seriousness, the ugliness of sin. God wants us to run to him when we're tempted. Rather than fall into sin and just live with regrets and if-onlys. The trouble is, we're all human. We've all said and done things that we can't take back. Maybe you've experienced some heavy consequences of sin in your own life, or even someone else's sin. We've, we all have. And no matter how much we may try, even as believers, we're going to fail again and again. This has been quite the feel-good sermon of the year, hasn't it? We're not quite done yet, though. See, people often misunderstand the Bible's warnings about sin that just kind of stop right here. Watch out! Or else, right? Or we see God's word as just a list of do's and don'ts that we never can quite measure up. Every time we hear it, we're just reminded again, I'm a sinner. 
Nothing I can do. And yes, sin is ugly. Sin destroys. Sin robs us of joy and blessing. But that's not the end of the story. Thankfully, the grand narrative of Scripture does not end with the great King David grieving and weeping as he crosses the Kidron Valley. Because there would be another king. David's descendant. The true king. The Davidic king without sin. Who would also cross the Kidron Valley weeping. Asking the father if there is any way for this cup to pass from him. But unlike David, he submits himself fully to the father's will. And where David failed, Jesus was victorious. Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross. He rose again to defeat sin and to defeat death forever. And he will come again to make all things right. And that is the end of the story that we look to. Our hope is in a coming king who has conquered sin and death. But until he comes, God allows us to experience the consequences of sin. Not in condemnation, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He wants us to see sin for what it is. He wants us to see the contrast with his beauty and goodness and love and mercy. To be able with the provision of Christ to more and more seek after the Father's heart. Turn over to Psalm 3. We heard this read already in the call to worship, but I want us to see here for just a moment that David knew this wasn't the end of his story either. As heavy as the consequences of his sin were, he knew that God was still with him. Psalm 3, look at the heading if you have that in front of you. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So let's not breeze over that. Let's take with us what we just heard and the story as it's fresh in our minds and hearts and let's remember all that David is feeling all that he's going through when God moves in his heart to write these very words Psalm 3 Lord how my foes increase there are many who attack me many say about me there is no help for him in God but you Lord are a shield around me My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. I don't know what stands out to you hearing these words again, but one thing that stands out to me is it kind of sounds a lot like David's other prayers of deliverance that he prays. It sounds kind of like what David prayed when he was on the run from Saul, when he was running, when he was innocent, running from his enemies. And he kind of prays the same way, calling on God for his help, calling on who God is, as his shield and deliverer. I don't think David is being ignorant here. I don't think David is overlooking his sin. We saw David come to grips with it and repent. He knows of his guilt. 
But he still sees, even though he's guilty, he's running from a mess that he made, he still sees God as his shield. Not just when he's innocent, but when he's suffering the consequences of his own sin, he still comes to God. Knowing who God is, knowing who he is as God's child. So this psalm, even in just the heading and knowing the context of when these words were written, this psalm reminds me that God does not abandon his people. Yet many of us, when we sin, when we fail, we can tend to get so wrapped up with guilt and shame and regret. We can think God wants nothing to do with us. We can hold God at arm's length as if that's more spiritual. Because we know what a mess we are and God must not want to be with us, so I'll just, I'll just stand over here. But that ignores the gospel. If you can relate to any of what I just said, I want you to read Psalm this week. Pray through Psalm 3 this week, knowing what the context was where it was written. What was in David's heart when he came and he cried this out to God? Know that in Christ, whatever is behind you, if you come to Jesus, you are forgiven. You may still see the brokenness around you that is partly your own doing, that's all your own doing, but that doesn't mean God has abandoned you. He is still your shield. He is still your salvation. When God saved you in Christ, didn't he know the future? Didn't he know all the ways that we would still continue to fail and sin, even as believers? But God saved us anyway. It's not about us. It's about him. Wherever your heart is today, cry out to the Lord from where you are. He will sustain you. He will keep his promises to you in Christ. And so, yes, as this tragic story reminds us, let's count the cost of our sin. Let's take a moment when we're faced with temptation and consider the cost. Come to God for help, to seek his heart. As the Apostle John writes, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... And it's implied, we will. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know, as a kid, you probably got consequences from your parents when you misbehaved. I know as parents, we try to give consequences. We're, of course, very imperfect in that as parents, as we all are. But the consequences are there to teach, right? The consequences are never there to change the status of the child, right? I'm not going to disown my son or daughter for stealing one of my Oreos. You think that's a fairly specific example. You must hold those pretty close to your heart. But no matter what my kids ever do, even that, they will always be my children. I will always love them. Think of David. Loving Absalom, despite all that Absalom had done, tried to kill his own father. And David still has the heart of a father, longing for his son. How much more is God our perfectly gracious, loving father? Like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, we fail. We feel unworthy to even be called the father's son or daughter. But he forgives us. He invites us back into his presence again and again. He says, I am your shield. I am your salvation. Let's close in prayer with the words of Psalm 3. 
And so as we hear these words another time, let's make this our prayer. Again, wherever your heart is this morning, if you have something heavy on your heart, wherever you are, make this your prayer. Make this your meditation. Lay whatever's on your heart at the Father's feet. Put aside that shame. Put aside that regret and receive his grace. Psalm 3. The Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me there is no help for him in God. But you are a shield around me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord. And he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Amen.